0: Man, what a... That's such a cool thing, um, appreciate our band leading us, but one of the greatest privileges is seeing all these kids in this space as we're singing, because I think it models to us what faith is, even in the craziness of life, these kids kind of model to us what faith is, and so really excited, they're going to one of the greatest uh, kids ministry communities in my opinion, we have such an all-star staff here uh, that runs this program and, and love on these kids, and so uh, we're so so grateful for them. Um, but hey, you all are stuck with me today. Uh, good morning, how are we doing today? Good, good. Um, uh, it's a beautiful spring day. Uh, this weekend, Bob is away. Actually, yesterday, his daughter got married, and so such a great weekend for Bob and Liz to celebrate that. So, you guys are stuck with me today. Hope that's all right. But today, we're in week seven of our series, Love Revolution. We're in week seven of this series, which has been all about how we can better love God and love neighbor. It's a series about revolutionizing how it is that we engage with God and our neighbor, right? Because we see in the scripture, Jesus distills everything, all of the prophets, all of the law to two testaments. And it's love God and love your neighbor, right? And so we've been talking about that the last few weeks as we've been here together as a church family. We've been talking about how we can't do it on our own, right? We can wake up in the morning and try and conjure the energy just to love people, but we need something outside of ourselves to transform us and enable us to do that better, right? Last week, Bob talked about 1 Corinthians 13, which is this way that we can take inventory on our lives and how we can better love our neighbor. And so he did that for us this week. Jesus broadens the command. And I'd be lying if I told you you're gonna like what he has to say. This week, Jesus broadens the command for us on how it is that we should love. And there's an incredible emphasis on what he has to say today, because what Jesus teaches today distinguishes the church, the the kingdom community, from any other community in the world, right? And so it's not going to be terribly fun, and it's not going to be terribly easy, but it's going to be good. Um, But before we jump into that, I want to tell y'all, I want to talk about something else real quick. Today's June 5th. You guys don't need to know the date. It's June 5th. That is today. Um, Originally... My wife and I were going to catch a flight from the Philadelphia International Airport. It was set to depart at seven forty. This evening it's American Airlines Flight 736, and we're gonna catch a flight to London Heathrow uh, as a layover, and then from there fly to Glasgow, Scotland, um, to for her to present at a conference, but also just to kind of have a vacation. That was on the itinerary. We had booked everything um, in March, and then we canceled everything in April upon finding out that we're expecting identical twins, which is just crazy and overwhelming, right? <clears throat> y'all are clapping, but I'm going to send all of that to her because she's doing all the hard work and I'm just sitting here panicking all the time, right? Um, so we did cancel that trip, but before we canceled that trip for my birthday, Jessica bought me two National Geographic books. One for London because we're going to spend a week in London and one for uh, for Scotland, for Glasgow, Scotland. And I loved having these books. I would read through them, flip through them and just read about everything of these cultures. We'd, I'd learn about the culture the values the food the places of interest the things that you just cannot miss if you go to Glasgow or if you go to London and so as we are reading through this these books I was compiling a list of things that I really wanted to do right I was looking through and I was compiling a list of things I was like hey we have to do that we have to try this restaurant we have to try this food right However, as we were reading through it too, there were also some things, as we read through the culture, the customs, the values, there were some things that were like, I don't know if I want to participate in that. (laughs) I don't know if I want to do that, right? For example, as we were building our itinerary, we booked this train. Um, This train, this is actually in Scotland. It is a gorgeous train, and it actually goes from, uh, it goes from Edinburgh. Is it Edinburgh or Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Yeah, I clearly have not been, right? Um, It goes from there to Loch Ness. You know, that kind of place that we all know where the the kind of Loch Ness monster originated, that theory, that idea, right? And so this train would travel all the way through to Loch Ness. And as we were booking, there were two options. There's one option to book with food, and then there's one option to book without food. And so like any rational human being, We're like, let's go for the food, right? Let's book the train with the food, right? And so we were about to book, and then we looked in the details, and we noticed it's a preset menu. And so we're like, okay, let's just make sure we like what we're, you know, about to sign up for. And I looked at the menu, and there were some Scottish delicacies in there that I just don't know if I could have stomached. I I don't know if I could have eaten. I don't know if y'all have heard of haggis. It's a delicacy in Scotland. It's kind of made up of like the liver and the heart and the lungs of a sheep. And I'm like, maybe we should do the, the option without the food, right? And so we ended up booking the train without the food. That was okay. We'd find some food at Loch Ness, right? And so another moment came when we were planning for London, and uh, we wanted to, I wanted to go to the London Eye. You guys are familiar with that. It's this massive architectural masterpiece, right? This huge Ferris wheel type thing that's almost right in downtown London. And I was like, Jess, do you want to go check out the London Eye? Do you want to go up it? And she's like, Chris, I can see London with my own eyes from the ground, right? I don't need to go up the London eye to see London. She's not a huge fan of heights, which is totally okay. And so we bypass that. But of course, none of it matters because we're having twins now, which is the best news, by the way. We were happy to cancel this trip because we're so overjoyed at the prospect of welcoming new life. And so, yeah, we'll go one day, but we are so excited about what is next, right? And so, As we're reading about the United Kingdom in this book, there were things that we wanted to do. We got these ideas. Our list was growing of things that we wanted to check out. However, there were things as well that we knew we did not want to do. There were things in these books that were custom, that were normal, normal, cultural in these places, and we did not want any part of it, right? Today, we're going to find ourselves... In a book where we're reading about the culture, the customs, the value system of the kingdom of heaven, right? However, today's teaching in particular might be one where if we had the ability to create our own itinerary, we might want to leave some things off. If we had the ability to customize what it is that Jesus is saying, what it is that Jesus is actually calling us to do, I might be tempted to leave some of the things off the list, because today's teaching, and one in particular, is a largely, it's a difficult teaching. It is one that is largely unique to Christian doctrine. It is one that many Christ followers, we kind of talk about it as a noble, virtuous enterprise, but then when it comes down to it, we're like, no, nah, I, I, I don't know if I can do that. I don't want to participate in that, right? And it's a teaching that is quite difficult. I would say it's controversial, scandalous, even radical, and it's offensive to our own sensibilities. Some of you might know where we're going with this. Today we're going to be focusing in on Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. It's not a fun one, and it's not an easy one, although we can't avoid it, right? And so this morning, I want to wrestle alongside of you as we wrestle with this kingdom culture that God is inviting us into, and I want to see what it is that God has for us in this. Because the bottom line is that those who participate in the kingdom of heaven, those who participate in the culture and the value system of the kingdom of heaven, by God's love and for love for God, love their enemies, We can't skate around that in the scriptures. And so we're going to wrestle with that today. This is a natural byproduct of following Jesus. It's a staple and a custom in the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And it makes this kingdom quite distinct from any other kingdom in the world, right? And it's practicing the same love that Jesus has shown for us. And so in order to uncover what this teaching is getting at, we're going to find ourselves in the gospel of Matthew today. This is the first gospel in the New Testament. And what we find happens is that Jesus is just starting his ministry, right? He was baptized and then he calls the disciples and then he just starts teaching and healing, teaching and healing. And as he's doing that, more people are beginning to follow this Jesus guy around. They're following him from city to city to city as he's teaching and healing. And then at one point in time, he notices all the people. The scripture says he notices everybody and he goes up to a mountainside and he sits down and he just starts teaching. And this is where we get the most famous sermon in the history of sermons. It is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we're gonna be today. And so this is what Jesus is accomplishing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is here to announce the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. That God is beginning the process to make all things new, right which is what we want. We look at the world today and we see how broken it is and we are excited that God has started this proce- process. He will one day finish it right and so in this moment, Jesus is announcing it is beginning. the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is starting. God is going to confront evil and he's going to ruin evil for good right and then Jesus starts teaching about his methodology, how he's going to make this happen right and so he starts to teach about the culture of this kingdom, detailing the lifestyle, the values, and the practices of this new kingdom. This sermon that he's giving is like a perfect National Geographic book for heaven, right? He's giving details of this kingdom, and he says, this kingdom is not to imitate the world, but rather participants in this kingdom are to be an active and faithful alternative community of loving, merciful, inclusive, praying, missional servants, Right, So he's exploring what does it mean to participate in the kingdom of heaven. And then guess what? He invites us along. He invites us to participate in this alternative community. Right? And so too often, um, I want to identify this, too often I think we take this beautiful teaching of the kingdom of heaven and we reduce all of the scriptures, all this stuff to this idea that God is in the business of behavior modification. But I think that's such a small view of what it is that God is doing, right? God's big MO, his main objective here is relationships. That we would be in relationship with our Father and that we would be in, in communion and relationship with each other. And so, what we find he does through the scriptures is he's not trying to teach behavior modification, but rather he's trying to expose the brokenness in us that complicates our relationships. The sin and the brokenness in us that ruins our relationships with each other and that ruins our relationship with the Father. All Jesus is trying to do to it is to expose that to bring healing, restoration, and redemption to that part of our lives. And so that's what we see Jesus doing largely in a lot of his teachings and in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon intended to expose the very brokenness in all of us. It is a sermon intended to bring these things to light so that we can experience relationships in the way that God has designed it. Isn't that a really good thing, right? Isn't that something we want, right, church? Yeah, we want that, right? And so God is trying to bring that to light, right? So if this sermon does not have this effect on our lives, I would question whether or not we're really hearing it, right? And so this morning, I hope and pray that we can receive and listen to this. And I don't want to, I want to preface the sermon by saying, you know, some of the text is really difficult to work through. Some of the conclusions that Jesus is teaching is really difficult. And guess what? It's not even fun sometimes, right? But I don't think it's meant to be easy or fun. And I think because it's not easy or fun, it forces us to hopefully rely more heavily on the Spirit of God to do a work in us, to transform us. And so before we jump into this passage, I just want to take a moment to pray as we dive in. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, the easy, fun, encouraging words, but God, we're so grateful even for your teachings that are not as quite easy, that are a bit more difficult, that are not as fun. God, we pray and ask that you soften our stubborn, selfish, and prideful hearts. May we give away the grace that you've so abundantly lavished on us. May we, with great joy and expectation, navigate this passage in hopes that you're making all things right again, that you're restoring the very brokenness in us. And may we remember that you've shown us a love when we were your enemies, God. And, And as you invite us to do the same, we pray that you fill us with your spirit to do so. God, we ask you to be in this place, speak through your word today, um, and be with us as we navigate this for our lo- own lives. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, with that, we're going to jump into Matthew 5, 48. Uh, we're actually near the um, tail end of the Sermon on the Mount here, and so if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can. If you're online, you can tune in online, and if you got it on your phone, you can tune in there too. So this is Matthew 5, verse 43, and it says this. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So, I have this really fun game that I play with my wife where she'll say something from across the room, and I'm clearly not paying attention. And then she'll ask this question Did you hear what I said? And then I have to try and like guess, like real quick, what could she have said to me? And so we're playing this game where it's not a game to her, it is to me. Um, But we're playing this game where she said something. She's like, did you hear what I said? I'm like, what could she have said in like the last 30 seconds that, you know, what were we talking about before? And I'd have to try and guess at what it is that we were saying. I lose that game a lot. Any husbands in here also play that game? Any wives mad that their husbands don't listen, maybe, right? Um, we play that game a lot, right? In this moment on the Sermon of the Mount, uh, Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding, a mishearing that these people who were following him had. Because you see in this moment on the Mount, six times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, right? If it happened six times in, in a day in my house where my wife is asking, did I hear what she said? We'd have Big problems, right? Um, Six times, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. So what he's doing, he's actually correcting a misunderstanding that these people who are following him had. He's correcting a mishearing that they had. And so the sixth and final time, Jesus does this. He starts his teaching with, you've heard that it was said. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But we have to ask... They've heard that this was said, where on earth does it say in the Bible to hate your enemy, right? Like we have to ask that question as Jesus is saying that. Does the Bible actually say hate your enemy, right? And so the first clause that Jesus is quoting says love your neighbor. He's actually quoting a passage in Leviticus chapter 19, 17, 18, where it says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we know where the love your neighbor part came in, but what about this second clause? Where did it come in to say hate your enemy, right? What actually happened is over the course they would teach this text orally, right? So it was passed down orally. And the the scribes and the priests would read from it all the time, right? However, what happened is they took this text and they made some conclusions about this text and they walked away with this idea that they were supposed to hate their enemies. Because who does it say to love? It says, love your fellow Israelite, right? Work at your conflict with them. Don't share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so these sentences together, they thought, who is our neighbor? Well, it must be our fellow Israelites. It must be those within our camp, within our inner circle, within our tribe, right? And so eventually the conclusion that they came to was that it was acceptable and a normal part of the Jewish ethic and teachings to love your fellow neighbors and whoever's outside of the circle. You can, the conclusion is hate them. You can neglect them. You don't have to do life with them because God's chosen us. Like this is where it's at, right? And so Jesus in this moment is not correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. He's correcting this crazy far-fetched conclusion that they came to that they could lo- love just the people in their camp and hate everybody else. They could neglect them and not take care of them, right? And we look at this and we say, how foolish is that? How ridiculous is that, that they came to that conclusion? However, we always have to be careful because how often do we do that, right? How o- we have this very brokenness in us that does this all the time, right? Like the Israelites... We're guilty, I'm guilty of loving people in my tribe. Loving people in my inner circle, right? And then the people who maybe don't follow my inner circle, I'm more prone to neglect or ignore, right? We see this very prominent in the world today with political parties, right? With nationality and race, with socioeconomic status, And even with uh, people with differing religious practices or belief systems, we're more prone to kind of hunker down and say, these are my people and everyone else. I don't have to pay attention to them, right? We're prone to this just like the Israelites, right? And then we start to begin practices and habits that reinforce this belief that we have that we're supposed to love people in our tribe, right? And so we start to ignore or shame those outside of our circle. We start to say, they don't deserve my love or my grace because did you see what they did, right? They don't deserve my love or my compassion because do you know what they believe? Do you know how they voted? They don't deserve anything good. And sometimes if we're being really honest, church, sometimes... We don't wish well for them, right? We might wish that they actually would suffer to some degree, that they could taste the very pain that they've caused us, right? I remember I was driving once. I wasn't driving, which was a really good thing. I was in a car once in Oregon with my in-laws and my wife. We were driving to Medford, Oregon. And um, on our way, Utah and Nevada are just desolate deserts. And so on our way— a car was coming up behind us and got really close to our tailgate, right? And y'all know me. I've confessed my sins with driving before. Um, Y'all know me. So he got really, really close. And you know when this happens, you memorize everything about the car, right? Just it, it has an imprint on you that they are the enemy and we are good, right? And so this car was imprinted in my mind. The face of the person was imprinted on my mind in part because they were so close to our tailgate, right? And I was fuming. Like it was a really good thing. I wasn't driving. I was so angry. So what happened was eventually he just whipped around past us and kept going, right? Off into the distance. About 30, 40 minutes later, we're driving and we look ahead and we see police lights. And as we get closer, we see that this guy got pulled over, right? Like we were celebrating, not because the drums of justice were beating again. No, we were celebrating because he was going to experience shame. He was gonna suffer financially, right? We were celebrating that he had experienced this. We need great grace because we are so prone to the very things that the Israelites we're prone to. We've gotten it so wrong, right? And so their conclusion after reading Leviticus was, I guess we just love our fellow Israelites. We love those in our camp. We love those that we identify with. And anybody else, it's a fair game. We can hate them, right? And we're so prone to this without even knowing. Verse 44, Jesus then begins to correct and offer a new way of doing life. This is what he says in 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. At this point in the sermon, I can imagine, even if Jesus were given this today, some people would walk out. They'd be like, this is crazy. This is ridiculous, right? So I can imagine some people like walked out of the sermon uh, at this point in time because they had grown up, right? With this idea that it is okay to hate people outside of your camp. It is okay to do that. Right? This was contrary, or it was contrasting what it is that they grew up believing for this guy to say, no, don't hate your enemies, but actually love them. Right? And we have to remember the bottom line for today is that in the kingdom of heaven, this is what Jesus is doing. He's painting a picture of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, by God's love and for our love for God, we love our enemies. And so let's synthesize this command together because it's kind of jarring and it's even profound and even offensive to some of us. Right? Right? It's easy to misunderstand this because we hear the word love and it's such a confusing word nowadays, right? Um, we think that if we need to love our enemies, we have to feel positively about them, right? We, uh, in our culture nowadays, we often associate love with this feeling that we have. And so, this idea that we love our enemies, some of us think in our minds, I could never feel positively about this person, right? And in addition, uh, the English word for love is so confusing because I can use the same word and say, I love my wife and I I love taquitos, right? Two very different (laughs) expressions of the same word. And actually, if we go to the original Greek, it helps us understand what it is that Jesus is getting at. Because we have one word for love, but in the Greek, there are multiple words with different meanings. And so here in verse 44, we see the word agapeo, which is actually the verb expression of the noun agape. Right? And so this verb, agapeo, is an unconditional love of the will that occurs regardless of the circumstances or context. It is not a feeling, nor is it always an expression of what we are feeling, but rather it is a conscious decision to seek the good of another. To want the best for someone else. To want to see them thrive and become who God has called them to be. Agapeo love isn't us changing them, as if we could do that anyway, right? Agapeo love isn't us forcing ourselves to feel positively about them and their actions. That's not agapeo love. But agapeo love is a decision that we make, and it's an action that we take regardless of what's happened, right? It is a love that is produced by the will of the heart, not our feelings, it is unconditionally, without condition, no strings attached, unconditionally doing good to and wanting good for another. That's what agapeo love is. It's our wanting the absolute best for someone else, right? How are we doing? Y'all following me? Yeah. Jesus then continues. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Some of us in here are really good at praying for our enemies, Right? Almost every week, I pray that the Cowboys would lose. (laughs) Right? Yeah, Amen. (laughs) Some of us are good at praying for enemies because actually, sometimes we don't pray the best prayers over them. Lord, Lord, just smite them, right? We've heard that saying before. Or some of us, some of us have very seriously prayed, God, I get what, I hope they get what they deserve, right? But that's not the kind of prayer that Jesus is inviting us to pray over our enemies. Remember the Jews, Jesus' audience at this time was primarily Jews. He's, remember he's, he's correcting this misunderstandings and these mishearings of scripture and so he's teaching Jews and if you know anything about their plight, their context they have been experiencing persecution for about 600 years right? Their families, their parents, their grandparents had been enduring this persecution in violent, oppressive ways for so long. And in light of this, Jesus is saying, pray for those who persecute you this would have been offensive. He's saying, advocate on their behalf with prayers of supplication to God. Ask that they would get God's best, right? That they would thrive, that they would grow, right? This is so upside down. This is so contrary to what they wanted to do. Maybe contrary to what some of us want to do. It is wildly irrational. Like this does not make any sense. Yet this is of God. This is the kingdom that God is inviting us into. This is the culture and the value system of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is inviting us into. And remember, those who participate in the kingdom of heaven by God's love and for love for God love their enemies. It's a love that is irrational. We sang about this a couple minutes ago. It's reckless, right? It is a reckless love that just does not make any sense at all, right? It is irrational. It is reckless. But it's the kind of love that breaks patterns and destroys the momentum of evil, right? It breaks the rhythms of hatred that are so contrary to the kingdom that God is inviting us to. It is a redemptive, a restorative kind of love that builds up and that restores and redeems. It's so contrary to anything else that we've seen, right? There's one famous activist that a lot of us probably know whose movement, whose work, his life work became famous because he very um, faithfully tried to stick to this idea of loving your enemies. And that's the work of Martin Luther King Jr., right? He he had a a love for enemies that was expressed in the non-violent demonstrations that he would participate in. And on this subject, he says this. He says, agape... Agape is creative and redemptive. It is goodwill for all men. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of man. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. Jesus says love because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. It's this kind of love we see Paul write about in Romans 12 where he says, if your enemy is hungry, he doesn't say celebrate. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil because isn't that what happens in those moments where we have an enemy and we don't want to love them? We want them to suffer, right? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome that very evil with good. Remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is trying to very clearly paint what heaven is like. He's trying to paint what the kingdom of heaven is like, the value system, the cultures, the practices, and the lifestyle of heaven, right? He's trying, and part of the bringing about the kingdom of heaven is to ruin the evil that has become of the world. It is to devastate the evil. It is to erase the evil from the world. And what better way to erase evil and to ruin evil than overcoming it with good, right? Overcoming it with something far more powerful and transformative than evil, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we might ask, like, why do I have to do these things? Like, why do I have to partake? Can't I be like Christian who changes the train? Is there another train I can take that I don't have to participate in that way, right? What can I do to get out of this? But we get a clear explanation in in, in 545, in Matthew 545, it says this. Again, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Those who have experienced this agape love, right? The hope is that when we encounter God, we've experienced this reckless love that I'm given regardless of my past and regardless of my conduct, right? If we've experienced this agape love, what naturally should happen is that it transforms me to love in the way that God has loved, right? So here, we are to imitate the very love of God to a broken and messy world. When I love like God loves, I begin to grow in likeness to the Father, which is the calling that every Christian who follows Jesus has on their lives is to grow in likeness and conduct of who Jesus is. And so if we want to do that, we got to remember, so what exactly did Jesus do? Like if I'm supposed to grow in the likeness of the Father and become more like Jesus and how I treat my friends and how I treat my enemies, what exactly does that look like, right? And we could look at the whole gospel to see this. Let's remember what he's done. He's so freely given his love to all. Even when I was an enemy of God, God lavished his love on me. When I was a foe of God, wanted nothing to do with God, God lavished his love on me. And we see this beautiful image like the sun and the rain fall indiscriminately on everything, right? They fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, right? They fall on everybody equally. This is the kind of love that God is talking about. This is agapeo love, and this is what God is inviting us to participate in to bring restoration and redemption to a very broken world, right? God gives love to everyone we would withhold love from. Any enemies, I'm sure as we're kind of working through this, you can think of people in your life that maybe there's conflict with broken relationships. God's giving love equally to all of those people. That's agapeo love. Every nation and every tribe, God's giving them an equal amount of love, regardless of history or conduct, God's loving them. That's agapeo love. Every single person in and out of the prison systems, right? We see incredible stories of redemption, not all the time, but God equally showers his love on the just and the unjust, the evil and the righteous, right? That is agapeo love. Jesus ate with sinners and the outcast. One of my professors used to say that one of the reasons why they, you know, the religious killed Jesus is he just ate with the wrong people, right? He violated their standards of conduct. He ate with people outside of the circle. He wasn't hating his enemies. He was actually loving them. And that was wrong per Jewish tradition, so they killed him for it, right? That's agapeo love. The son And the rain fall on all things, the just and the unjust. In God's bountiful economy, everybody receives this agapeo love, regardless of conduct, regardless of wrongdoing, regardless of history. That's that's offensive to our sensibility sometimes, right? But the cool thing is what happens when rain and sun fall on the land, right? What does it do? It brings forth life, Right? We get this beautiful image that if we can love in the same manner as God, there's an increasing chance that life will come from the life will come from the ground, life will come from the mess of this life, that it'll transform dirt into something beautiful, right? So this idea that our love, this love that God has lavished on us and is inviting us to bring about in this world, can and will transform things. This is how we bring about the kingdom of heaven. It's not just loving, but it's loving those who don't deserve it because isn't that what Christ did for us? None of us were deserving. None of us earned it. I've not earned it, yet God has given it so freely to me, to us, right? And so it's a beautiful thing if we can participate in that. It brings about life, right? Because again, those who participate in God's kingdom of heaven by God's love and out of love for God love their enemies, right? We doing okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, The passage continues in verses 46 to 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This year, um, I've been learning a bit more about investing. Uh, It's been a great year to start, right? Um, I've been learning a bit more about investing. As I was kind of wrestling with this passage, I've kind of come to the thought that I think a lot of times we treat our love like we do an investment, right? Where do we invest our finances, right? If there's a stock that has promise of good return over a long period of time, I will invest there, right? I'll put my energy, my resources into that. If I see a stock that's going to return a lot, I'm going to put a lot of my resources in there, right? We're very meticulous about where we put this commodity of ours. We're very selective in this process, right? However, we don't invest in a stock or anything that we think will have very little return, right? If I perceive something's not gonna give me back what I want, I'm not gonna put my resources there, right? And we might even reference the stocks past. Like, I've done that before. It burned me. It took my money the last time. It was dishonest to me, right? And so we refused to then invest our resources there. But there's a resource that's far greater than money that God's lavished on us and it's love and compassion. And he's saying, let's not treat, he's not saying, I'm saying, let's not treat love like it's an investment. That we put it in the places where we will get something in return. But let's give it out so freely and liberally just like God did to us, right? It is, it's not an investment where we pour into those places that can promise return, but rather it is a gift we give away. Right? With no expectation of return. The moment we treat our love like we do an investment, as a resource given to only those that deserve it or can give us something back, it becomes conditional and is no longer love. That's no longer agape love, right? There's nothing virtuous about that. There's nothing noble about that. Isn't that what the rest of the world does? In fact, Jesus is saying, he's saying, you look at the tax collectors and the Gentiles, they love their friends, right? You guys are no different than them if that is how far your love goes. And this would have been offensive to the Jewish audience because guess what? Their enemies were the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And so Jesus is saying, "Your enemies, you're doing just as well as they are in this category. And how you love other people. I'm calling you to something different, something far better and redemptive and restorative that breaks these patterns of hatred that we wrestle with, right? And so he invites them to that. And I would argue that this passage is even implying that the marker that distinguishes Christians, the kingdom of heaven from any other kingdom, is not our love, but it's who we love, right? Because if we love just those that love us back, we are no different than the rest of the world, right? but there's something powerful and redemptive about what God is inviting us into. And yes, it's quite difficult, um, but there's something powerful and redemptive to it as well. And this is the marker, I think, that distinguishes Jesus' followers from anyone else. They're just so compassionate to me, and I don't know why I don't deserve it. They're so gracious and kind to me, even though I insulted them and their family, right? There's something different about them. This is the marker that should be distinguishing us from any other community in the world, right? Those who participate in the kingdom of heaven by God's love and for love for God, love their enemies. And isn't that what makes the gospel such good news, right? That I'm not deserving of it, that I couldn't earn it, yet God gives it to me as a gift anyway. That when I was his enemy, he lavished that love on me, right? But the moment we preach unconditional love and then practice conditional love, we've taken the good news out of the gospel, right? The moment we tell people about this God who loves them unconditionally and that we love them unconditionally, and then we love them actually conditionally, we've taken the good news out of it. It is no longer good news, right? Jesus concludes his teaching in verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I remember reading this passage as a teenager. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to take so much work. And so I'd like get up every day, just try and work really, really hard to be perfect. Because right there in Matthew 5, it says, I got to be perfect just like God, right? That is so overwhelming. Um, The English word perfect, ironically, is not the most perfect translation. Because as we hear that word, we think morally upright without any error, right? Morally upright without error. However, the the Greek word provides a bit more clarity. It says teleos, which means reaching the end, complete and mature, right? Loving our enemy, wanting the best for them might be the only avenue we have to ever express the kind of love that God has shown us. It's the hardest love for us to practice, yet in doing so, our love grows more perfect and more in reflection of who God is. It becomes agape love, right? One of my favorite theologians, Tim Mackey, says it this way, that humans are never more like God than they are when they love their enemies. To perform an act of generosity and kindness to someone outside of your circle, to go against the grain of your intuition, to look with compassion and perform an act of generosity, humans are never more reflective of God than they are in that moment, right? The kingdom of heaven is an alternative community, and in order to participate, we have to have alternative practices, right? In the world around us. That's what God is trying, that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand in this passage. I want to share a story of a, of a man who I think embodied this well. Um, it's a really old story. It's the winter of 1569. This this Christian by the name of Dirk Willems. Um, he was a Christian, but he was put in prison because actually back then if you had Theology that deviated from the church, they'd put you in prison for it. Um, and so this gentleman had uh, contrasting views on baptism, right? Um, and so he was in prison. And so this so is the winter. So one day he tries to escape prison. He makes a homemade rope using uh, kind of just rags that he had access to, tied him up and climbed out of his cell and started running. He like bolted it, right? And um, it was winter. So there's a moat, uh, outside, So he had to run over the moat to, um, to, free, to, to flee the prison, right? And so he's running over the moat. He was malnourished probably because, um, you know, food in the prison system at the time was not very great. It wasn't very filling. And so he was probably lighter. And so he was actually able to run across the moat. And he looked back and his, uh, his um, guard was actually pursuing him. And so he, ma- he made it over the moat. But as he looks back, he sees that the guard actually was started to fall through. And he could have run. He could have kept going to freedom, but he actually stopped, turned back around, and pulled the guard out of the water, right? He's trying to get out of prison and he knows what's going to happen if he goes back for this guy, right? And so he pulls the guard out of the water and actually we find in the story um, that the guard wanted to let him go. There was this moment of compassion and transformation that this guard had where he wanted to let this man go, but then his colleague reminded him of his oath that he swore upon taking the job. And so they rearrested Dirk and he was executed weeks later. It's irrational, right? It's reckless, and it's so counterintuitive, and it's agape love. It seeks the best for another that hopes in the best for others, that has no promise of return. It's love that Jesus has so graciously shown us, and it's the kind of love that Jesus invites us to so graciously show others so that we could show them what heaven is like, right? Right? Now, I don't want to pretend that any of this is easy, right? Like, Christian, you're just, like, teaching about it, but it's much more complicated than that. Like, I totally get that. I don't want to pretend that any of this is easy. I don't want to oversimplify what is a very complex, what is a very difficult, and for some of us, incredibly personal issue. So I don't want to make a lot of that. And so I want to mention a couple of things before we conclude to kind of help put this invitation that Christ is giving us into context. The first thing being is that loving our enemies does not mean we overlook or enable any continued patterns of hostility or abuse, right? If I love someone, I'm not serving them well if I enable them to continue in harming others, That's not loving. That's not wanting the best for them. So loving our enemies does not mean that we just have to turn a blind eye and overlook any patterns of hostility or abuse. It doesn't mean we can't create some life-giving healthy boundaries for both parties. That is an okay thing. Sometimes for healing to take place, you have to stop doing something, right? And for healing to take place, it is okay to create life-giving healthy boundaries, right? And as I teach on this passage, like it's complicated. There's not a cookie-cutter solution to loving our enemies. It's going to look quite different for a lot of us in our situations. And I'm sure there's much more to be said. But what would it look like if we as a church could practice these things in increasing measure? What if, as we continue to journey through our life, what would it look like for us to Every day, just, I'm going to love my enemies a little bit more today. Those people who are hostile to me, those people who are careless with their words around me, right? Those people who have offended me and my family, how can I show them the love that Jesus has shown me? So I'm going to wrap up with just a couple practices that we might consider um, to love others well. As we seek to become mature and complete in this practice of loving our enemies. And the first one is awareness. I think the best thing we can do is just remind ourselves about how good God's love is, right? Remind ourselves about how God has treated us. Let's receive that gift every day when we lift our head from the pillow. Let's receive that gift of God's love and let it transform us. Let that be like the lighthouse that we look to in the darkness that reminds us of how good God God's love is, and that will start to transform us from the inside out. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God's love can transform us. That's where most of the work takes place. So let's grow in our awareness of how deeply loved we are, despite our past, despite anything, right? The second thing is, let's be aware that some of the qualities that we don't like in our enemies are qualities that we have, right? We're all deeply flawed, and we're all deeply in need of grace, So let's just remind us that we are in need of a work as well. Let's have awareness that there's far more similarities that we have with everyone around us and there are differences in a world where we like to highlight our differences and kind of push labels and all these things let's remind ourselves that my goodness as children of god we all have so much more in common than we do apart right so let's remind us of that let's become aware of that and the second thing is this the first one again is having this awareness the second thing is having a kind of growing in our attitude (laughs) in increasing measure may we practice empathy which is being heartbroken for the brokenness in us and others. It's easy to get super mad. I'm guilty of that, right? I told you the story of us in Oregon. It's so easy to get mad. But what if, instead of being so mad, what if we could have a little more empathy? Man, it breaks my heart that this is the best way they see they can act. It breaks my heart that this is the best solution for them, right? Or what if we had compassion, right, to mourn and to suffer alongside these broken patterns we see in our world? to have great empathy and great compassion. And then an attitude that we need to have is hope, right? That the best is yet to come, that God's not done with us, hope knowing that no one is beyond redemption. And that is really good news because that includes me, that includes us, that no one is beyond redemption. So we have awareness, increasing awareness We have these attitudes that we just grow into, that we continue to lean into. And then the third thing is action. An increasing measure, may we commit to being a people of mercy and grace that break down, let's participate in breaking down the patterns of hatred in the world. How cool is that? That God invites us to break down patterns of hatred and violence. To create a different way of doing life and to show people that life. Let's commit to being a people of great mercy and great grace. When we're having a hard time thinking about what it means to love someone else, uh, we can follow C.S. Lewis's advice in Mere Christianity. Um, he writes, When you don't know what it looks like to love, ask yourself this question. Um, What does it look like to love in this moment? And then upon answering the question, just go and do whatever the answer is, right? Just lean into it and take that action, right? And then the last thing, um, hopefully memorable in our practices and it's easy and concise because it draws from a, a popular idiom that we have in the world today, but it's changed a little bit. Let's give them heaven, right? Let's give them heaven because many of us are familiar with the phrase like give them hell. Make their life a mess. Like do exactly to them what they did to you. But what if we could do it differently? What if we could give other people heaven? We could literally break the patterns of hell. We could break the patterns of hatred and all of these things. And we could give someone else heaven. And so when we're faced with the option, do I give them heaven or hell? Let's give them heaven every time. and Let's show them what our God is about. Amen? So, I want to challenge you who in your life could use a bit more heaven? (laughs) I know we all have that person in our mind, and sometimes we're like, I don't have any enemies, but maybe we do. Who in your life could we give a bit more heaven to? Who in our life could we show compassion and mercy to and show them this agapeo, this agape love that Jesus has shown us? Because one of the greatest things that we see, the best examples of this love, is Jesus at the table and Jesus going to the cross. Where Jesus invites anyone, regardless of merit, to sit down and to receive his love, right? I love um, Bob's quoting of Ray Ortlund, his summary of the gospel. Love it so much. It's, I'm an idiot, (laughs) the future is bright, and anyone can get in on this. That's the gospel. I'm an idiot, but the future is bright, and anyone can get in on this. And so one of the greatest examples of love, again, we see in the scriptures is Jesus going to the cross. And then he's having supper uh, with his friends. But we also know there's a foe at the table, right? It's believed that Judas was there. And in that moment, Jesus offered him that bread and that drink um, to participate in that. And so as I mentioned, as we kind of navigate this difficult situation, journey of loving our enemies, I think we need this increasing awareness of how loved we are, but then also of how broken we are as well. And so what we're going to do as we enter this time of communion, as we enter this time of reflection, is we're going to pray a prayer of confession as a church together, um, just so that God can expose the very brokenness in us, and so that he might redeem it and restore it. And so from your seats from at home, let's pray this prayer out loud together. Holy God, Your love is amazing, steady, and unchanging. Your love is relentless, passionate, and astounding. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, which has redeemed us and restored us to a right relationship with you. We confess that we take this gift for granted. We fail to grasp the significance of the sacrifice. We continue to live as unredeemed people. We love others rarely, we love you feebly, and we put our own interests first often. Forgive us our sinfulness, cleanse us, restore us, reorder our loves aright, and ignite our hearts with a passion to live for you. We humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen. On the evening that Jesus was having a meal with his disciples, uh, he took the bread And he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Take and eat. This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the meal was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to God, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant shed for everybody. And I give this to you. Drink, and as often as you do so, do this in remembrance of me. This is a meal we're going to participate in together. Uh, It represents that God loves us all deeply and everybody is welcome at this table. What's going to happen, our ushers are going to come forward and dismiss you. Again, we have gluten-free over here. And if you don't want to practice the intention of the dipping in the chalice, there are some cups over here that you can grab as well. Um, But we invite you at this time to receive agape love and receive what God has for us. Amen. Amen.
1: has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to
0: reason to celebrate. The chains have been broken, yet not I, but through Christ in us. Uh, So today, I actually want to mention in closing, um, today's Pentecost Sunday. This is considered like the birthday of the church, and it's marked by the moment that the Spirit of God fell on His people. And in order to love our enemies, we cannot do this without the transforming power of the love of God in us. And so whenever we are struggling, may we come back to this table and be reminded of how beautiful it is that God has welcomed us. In fact, we should be partying all the time. That's such a good thing, right? And so I pray as we go from this place, as we love not only our community, but those who might have fallen outside of it, may we be filled with the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. We love you guys. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.
1: To this, I hold my heart.